Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 204 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Isn't podcasting kind of fun? I don't know what today finds you doing, but I hear from you every single week. And a lot of you say, well, here's what I'm doing when I'm listening to this podcast. I'm on a run or I'm training for an Ironman or a triathlon or I'm cooking dinner or I'm commuting or I'm on vacation. Like I got this eight hour drive. So I'm binge listening. Uh, others like me, you listen uh, while you're mowing the lawn or doing yard work, even like washing the car, you can listen. Uh, and of course, cycling, one of my favorite go-to things. So I don't know what you're doing today, but it's the middle of summer. I hope you're having a great time, whatever that is. And just thanks for being you. Thanks for all the feedback. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. Thank you to all of you. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe. It's free on Apple Podcasts. Tune in. Um, let's see, where are we? Google Play and Stitcher and soon to be Spotify. So maybe by the time you listen to this, we're already on Spotify. I don't know. Anyway, we'll be soon, and it is fun to do this. And here's what we try to do. Every single week, we try to bring you the conversation behind the conversation. You know, we live in an age where, honestly, you know, you can get content anywhere. You can listen to any sermon. You can listen to any conference talk. So what we try to do on this podcast is go behind the scenes. And if you were having lunch with whoever is speaking or whoever is leading, like, what are the questions you'd ask them? And those are the questions that I would try to bring. Um, to this interview. And that's what I did with John Tyson. John is somebody that I've been wanting to get to know for a number of years. Our paths have almost crossed. And then they didn't until we got together for this podcast. I think we were within minutes of like <laughs> speaking at the same event in Australia a couple of years ago. Anyway, that's where he is originally from. And then a number of years ago, he actually moved to New York City where he founded Trinity Grace Church, uh, had an incredible run there. They grew to like thousands of people in 11 locations. And then last year, uh, started over again at Church of the City in New York. They meet in Hell's Kitchen and other places. I mean, he's doing ministry in downtown New York City, like Manhattan. And you want to talk about cynics. You want to talk about people who are hard to reach. Well, he is on the tough soils for sure. And he's doing a great job. So we talk about that. We talk about the personal journey in leadership and what you can do when you're really trying to work with a crowd as sophisticated, educated, and cynical and suspicious as people in New York City. So I think you're going to love this. John and I, I don't know why, we just hit it off right off the bat. I think you'll hear that in the conversation. It's, uh, it's a good one. It's a really good one. Um, hey, what are you doing for training your church this fall? If you haven't yet checked out trainedup.church, I would encourage you to do that. So head on over to trainedup.church and on exit, use the coupon code CARRY. You'll get 10% off your service for life. So what is trainedup.church all about? Well, it actually helps you train 100% of your volunteers because like in the old days, that never happened. And the old days are still happening in the vast majority of churches because you do some Wednesday night event hoping everybody shows up and then half your people show up and the people who need to show up didn't. Have you ever been there? What if you took your training online and what if you did it in a way that anybody could access it anytime so you can get 100% training? Now, I'm passionate about this for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
you want all of your volunteers on the same vision. I mean, we just did a national conference a month or so ago at our church. And you know what we heard again and again? How do you get your volunteers to like, they all, it's, it's like they all say the same thing and they're all on vision and mission. Well, that's training. Your culture has to be shared with your people. You can do that through training. And then of course, there's stuff like safety. And I mean, in kids, men, that's just essential. Having even 10% of your volunteers not trained, eh, big mistake. So trainedup.church has all kinds of new features. They just did a major revamp. Go and check it out. So guys, head on over to trainedup.church now before it's too late and the fall's here. Use the coupon code CAREY, C-A-R-E-Y, on checkout, and that will give you 10% off for life. Go to trainedup.church now and don't miss out before it's too late. Um, also, Hey, I, I want to let you know, we've got some stuff for business leaders coming up. So if you're like me, I've been in the church space for two decades, but prior to that, I was in business and in law specifically. I always try to learn from the best and we have a slew of business people coming up. So if there is somebody in your church that you think could benefit from this, uh, next week I interview, well, I'll tell you about that at the end, okay? But I just want you to bear this in mind and think about who could you email, who could you text the link to this show and say, hey, check this out. Just think about that. Maybe even do that um, right now. But in the meantime, we're going to jump into my conversation with John Tyson. Well, I'm so excited to have John Tyson on the podcast today. John's been a long time coming. I always hope we could connect. So thanks for saying yes. Mate, I'm so honored to be on here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, I'd love to start... Um, in your original transition a few years ago, well, decade ago or so, from Australia to America, um, yes. lots of Australian friends, that is the accent that people are hearing, and specifically New York City. And I'm just curious, having spent time in Australia, New Zealand, like quite a bit of time, and being a Canadian, I'm yes. curious about what you would, even though the vast majority, I think 80% of this audience is US for this podcast, but I'd love to to think about the cultural differences you noticed almost immediately. So I've been, so I'm, I'm 41. I moved to the US when I was 20. So I've been here for half my life. And right. I've been in New York for 13 years and the rest of my time was spent in the South. So when I came, so I, from Australia, obviously, which is pr it's pretty secular place. And you're um, Melbourne, right? In Australia? So, so I was born in Melbourne, um, but I spent the vast majority of my time in Adelaide, South Australia. Oh, Adelaide's so, so beautiful. Well, I thank love you Adelaide, yeah. Nobody ever goes to Adelaide when they come That's to That's what they tell me every time I've been there. So many yes. people said, thank you for coming to Adelaide. Nobody ever goes to Adelaide. We have the chip on our shoulder. Yeah, you do. Um, so so I, I grew up there and um, I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to work in a, in a butcher shop. So, very, you know, very working class. Um, so when I came to America and I, I arrived in Atlanta, Georgia, Coming to the South was a level of culture shock I couldn't comprehend. So there was basically Southern folk religion and a Christ-haunted culture. And I remember very, very clearly the first time I went to Walmart to buy some supplies for school, just honestly being dumbfounded that they had a Christian book section at the checkout. Yeah. And I just, I didn't even have a paradigm for how this could happen. How, how in a Walmart... <laughs> Could there be books on Jesus and not just general books like Bibles, but the Christian life? 
And I think that informs. So I've lived in I lived in Atlanta, then I was in Tampa, then I was in Dallas, then I was in Nashville, then uh, to Orlando. So all southern states. And I noticed the the Christ hauntedness of the culture. Jesus is a reference point, uh, mm. and assumed somewhere in the in the framework, Jesus was in there. Now, when I moved to New York, where I've lived for the last thirteen years, no Christ haunted anything. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just very very secular, very very cynical. And uh, so there's those there's those cultural differences on a on a religious level. Um, on a cultural level, there's, there's a lot of differences between Australia uh, and America. My wife, who I've been married to for 20 years, keeps telling people I'm in a cross-cultural marriage. And I <laughs> is think she American? Is, yeah, she's American. So there is truth to that. I mean, if you were to take, um, I don't know, maybe say if there was like 40 different life characteristics about, you know, humor, money, food, sports or whatever, and you would basically really pass out culture. There are there are massive differences between Australia and America. Hmm. Spiritually, how would you? I know there's the Australia you left and the Australia today. Yeah. But I know we do have at least a measurable percentage of Australian, New Zealand, Kiwi listeners. How would you describe that temperature vis-a-vis New York? Is it similar? My take would be Australia is more apathetic, so it, it would be similar in terms of the lack of concern or interest in Christianity. Mm. Um, I think New York would be a little more hostile to evangelical Christianity and Australia would be a little more apathetic. Yeah. So, you know, that, that would be my take on, on it. It feels similar, but when you really dig into it, Aussies would be like, look, mate, I don't give a stuff, whatever. And New yeah. Yorkers would be like, I can't believe that you really believe in that oppressive source of evil. You know, it's a little more like that. Hmm. And I think you find both in Canada. I think you see yeah, yes, yeah. you see indifference, like apathy, and then you see like, I thought you were intelligent. You really believe that somebody rose from the dead? Like how can you possibly believe that? Like yeah. people just look at you incredulously. And and I think one of the ways that it's probably true is younger people in cities tend to reflect a level of hostility more than the the general populace, which probably defaults towards apathy. So, yeah, I imagine if you were downtown Toronto, there'd be a level of basically, you know, how people are educated these days, post-Christian, very secular. They would probably be more, and obviously caring about justice, would view Christian faith as a source of oppression rather than something to not care about. So, they, they would have some angst to oppose it. And I think you see that in cities with younger folks more than you do with the general populace. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Um, I think people people in cities are exposed to more diversity. Um, you know, if you grow up your whole life being told that, you know, non-believers are this, that, and all the rest of it, and you interact with them, you realize they're actually very thoughtful, kind, gracious, nicer than most Christians that you've met in many cases. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get in, when you encounter the other it often has the ability to deconstruct the simple faith you were told. And so when people go into cities, they're just confronted with more. The simple things fall apart. They're given a global perspective. It's often framed around justice and injustice. And who wants to be the oppressor? Nobody. So everybody either wants to help the victims or 
be a rescuer. And uh, when that's taught in cities and when you encounter people with that's their framework, that, that makes its way into people's hearts and, and life vision, I think. Do you think that there is a similar shift in the younger generation, say, even in the Bible Belt, that as people have been exposed to more, you know, their parents' worldview or their church worldview may have been, you know, black and white, we're good, they're bad, um, stay away from these people. But I mean, the internet has kind of brought the city or it's kind of brought the world to people's pockets. Do you think that explains in part, I mean, there's no comprehensive this isn't a comprehensive question, but in part, do you think that could be contributing to why so many young adults are walking away? I, I don't think it's it's contributing. I think it's it's the primary reason. Mm-hmm. Like I was just I was just reading an article. Um, the Atlantic's cover version was on transgender youth, and it was amazing. All of the kids whose stories were told said, "I read about, I read and watched stories of transgender people on YouTube," yeah. and that was it. That was the discipling mechanism. That was the explanatory instrument. And the typical person today may live in a town where everybody is hyper-conservative and, and they just get online and you're exposed to the entire world's ideas. So I think that is the reason and the factor that a younger generation thinks like that. Fascinating. I talked to so many leaders and, um, you know, if I'm talking to a 25-year-old leader, particularly a 25-year-old male leader, they... I can't think of any exceptions. I mean, this is anecdotal. They all listen to podcasts, and they're from a whole variety of worldviews. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's 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 totally true. I mean, and you can do it in the in the safety of your home, without without all of the um, the the. The, the political correctness, whether that's conservative theological political correctness or liberal political correctness, you get you get to explore and listen and evaluate, and why wouldn't you do that? Why not at least see what's out there? And now, if you don't have uh, solid theology to filter it, it can be dangerous. But if you do, it gives you an awareness of the need and mission field of our generation. So, mm-hmm. and I think what's happening is absent the the solid theology, the the deeply rooted worldview and personal faith, people are like, well, I don't buy what I was told anymore, and they walk away. Yeah, and with shortening attention spans, which is so hard, because we live in a culture of the immediate and the soundbite, and most things we're talking about are very, very complicated and nuanced. Yes. Nobody has time for nuance. Nobody has an attention span to think critically for sustained periods of time. So that does make it even more challenging. Yeah, and it's that it's that idea that everybody is three questions away from their worldview collapsing. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's yeah. definitely true. Yeah. All right. So you were quoted as once saying that the future of the Western Church is going to be hashed out in America. Uh, first of all, is that accurate? Did you actually say that? Uh, I said something like that. What did yeah, you mean I, by I, it? Yeah. Well, I, I I think America's had such disproportionate. Uh, influence on the world as a whole, particularly a word emerging not just as an economic or military superpower since World War II, but as a cultural superpower. Mm. And, you know, it, it's extraordinary. You go, to, you go on mission trips and you reach tribes that are almost unreached and they'll have T-shirts on with American brands. Yeah, and you, know, you, you, you go to restaurants in the middle of absolutely nowhere and they'll be watching American sitcoms. So the, the cultural reach of the United States is it's unparalleled. And even even with um, things like YouTube, which are you know democratizing influence, I I definitely think it is still one of the places, if 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 not the central place, where the Western Church will be hashed out. Now, 
I'm not saying the future of the church is Western. I think all the research shows the future of the church is actually in the global South. But the future of the Western church, I think, will still be hashed out through the United States. How has that evolved over the last 20 years since you've been in America? How have you seen the future of the Western church change? Well, I think in many ways it is... um, we're now dealing with issues of missiology, whereas before it was primarily about ecclesiology. So before, 20 years ago, it was, what is the church model that is going to help your church grow? And today people are asking, what is the missional strategy that's going to reach the unchurched? And model is second. So Hmm. when I moved to the US, I mean, it was was Willow Creek. It was Saddleback. That that was it, man. If you were a young yeah. leader with ambition, it was like going to one of those big churches. And now I think people, people, I think the megachurch will always be here. God will always raise up disproportionately gifted leaders and communicators. I don't think they're going away at all. Mm. But people are asking the question, not just how do we get people to our church, but how do we bring the mission of God to people? And as people are in general less interested in going to church, Missiology is becoming more important. So I think missiology is the issue where it's being hashed out rather than ecclesiology. So you've ministered in New York City for 13 years, first at Trinity Grace, and then as of like in the last 12 months, right? Making a shift. And you took a couple of those original 11 sites and you are now Church of the City, New York. Talk to us about what is, we've already touched on it a little bit, but uh, what is distinct about ministry in New York? Because I think Frank Sinatra was right. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, right? It is a different bird, and yeah. I'd love to get your take. Yes, well, New York, it's, it's very, very hard to speak. Um, one of the things about New York is New York will always be bigger than you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like Hillsong could grow to 100,000, and people would be like, who cares, in New York because people are here for themselves. So it's very, very hard to talk about New York because you've got five boroughs, you've got, you know, dozens and dozens of neighborhoods that are very, very distinct. I'll speak from my my, uh, cultural reference point. So I'm in the middle of Manhattan. I work predominantly with um, um, immigrants to New York, and I mean um, location immigrants rather than cultural immigrants or or national immigrants. They're, They're people from all over the world with graduate level degrees who are here to make it either on Broadway or in Wall Street. And so those are the two defining realities. So I'm talking primarily about Manhattan. Um, E.B. White wrote a book called Here is New York. And he said there's three kinds of New Yorkers. He said, you've got the locust. And this is someone who lives outside the city that comes in to graze on its resources. Mm. You've got the native who barely even notices the city. It's it's just all they know. And then he says, you get the person who moves there to, to become someone great. Mm. And that is the essence of New York. It is a it is a type three Enneagram. It's a an INTJ. It's a it's a high D. It's like that driven, ambitious person who comes to New York. So that, that is my reference point of, of being a New Yorker. What I would say is distinct about ministering to these kinds of people is you have to deconstruct rather than build. You have to disciple with contrarian spiritual disciplines and you have to uh, make friends with have to make friends with the fact that they're going to be cynical rather than naive. 
so to, so to unpack those a little bit, su- super transient, it's more like a college ministry. Mm-hmm. Most people in my church won't be here in three years. Probably 70% of them will be gone. So you're perpetually church planting. So you almost have to think, what do I want to happen to these people while they're here? Rather than thinking, how do I get them to stay? How do I get them to stay? You almost have to treat it like, how do I equip them? So I've got five goals. I want people to be loved, formed, equipped, empowered, and sent. Mm -hmm. And if people say, while I was in your church, I I experienced New Testament love. I was helped uh, being formed into the image of Jesus. I was equipped for my mission. Like I actually got tools to follow Jesus well. I got a sense that I was sent on mission and I got the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's a win for us. So transience is hard. So shifting from a permanent to a temporary equipping strategy. When it comes to discipleship using these contrarian spiritual disciplines, for me, it's almost always um, silence, solitude, and stopping. It's disciplines of Mm. disengagement. So rather than trying to get people to do things for God, you're trying to get them to stop and evaluate who they're becoming. And uh, this can be challenging. How, how does that show up? I'm fascinated by the deconstruction observation because something, I think, in a post-Christian culture, like, you know, one of, one of the defining characteristics of Christendom is a shared value system, right? Right. Or an assumed value system. Maybe it's not shared, but it's assumed. And your public face is going to pay homage to a certain um, understanding of how the world works and how we interact. And I think what's happened is the fractionalization of morality to the point where, you know, in New York, you're going to get, you got a thousand people, you got a thousand worldviews. Yes. Talk to me about how deconstruction works in that context. Well, so there's, there's multiple things that have to be deconstructed. One is... Um, deconstruction of privilege in some sense. And like I said, this is from my worldview. So when you're preaching to people with Ivy League graduate degrees, making well into the six figures, some of them seven figures, when you preach, you preach very differently than when you preach to the poor. Mm. So if you're preaching to under-resourced people, you say things like, don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't. It's all about empowerment. God is for you. Rise up. It's, It's all about exhortive empowerment. But when you're talking to people who are, um, you know, they've basically made their way in the world, you, yeah. have to de- you have to deconstruct the things that they're relying on. So it's like, don't think that your education counts towards favor with God. Don't think that your hard work means that by default, it's actually deconstructing all the things they've built their life on that make them entitled and superior. So one is about empowerment. One is about trying to produce humility so they actually see their need for God. So that's that's sort of on the, the socioeconomic level. Uh, in terms of deconstructing and, and reaching people, I've been, been thinking a lot about this. It's in Acts chapter 2, the preaching was um, preaching to the children of the covenant. He was your Messiah. You've crucified your Messiah. In Acts chapter 10, when it goes to the God-fearing Gentiles, it's preaching to the children of promise. And so mm. it's like God has promised. But when Paul's in Acts 17, his whole framework is preaching to the children of creation. So he has to start way, way further out in order to find a connecting reference point before he ended with Jesus. Now, they still end up in the same place, Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 17. And in Acts 17, it's like, hey, God's overlooked your ignorance in the past, but now he's appointed a day when everyone's going to have to repent and give an account to Jesus. 
So, and he ends up being very offensive culturally after a smooth introduction by saying, God doesn't live in temples built in human hands, which was their framework and understanding of religion. So the deconstruction part means you have to start so much further out to get a shared reference point, which I think in many ways is the Imago Dei. People have inherent human yeah. dignity. That is the thing that we all agree on, particularly in the justice-oriented culture. But then Christians start asking, why? Why do human beings have inherent dignity? And then you've got to make the case of, of why you believe in a creator and the Christian worldview. And you have to deconstruct the other views that say people can have inherent human dignity without any cause. And so that would be an example, like the cultural distance you have to start at to have the same conversation. And you can spend, if you say something like the angle scale, that classic evangelistic tool, and if, if you're not familiar with the angle scale, just Google angle scale of evangelism, E-N-G-L-E scale of evangelism. And you're starting a lot further down the scale in New mm. York. You're starting at like negative 10, negative yeah, 8. Yeah. Whereas in the South, you're starting at negative 3, which is basically, you know there's a God, you know it's the Christian God, you know it's Jesus, you know that to get right with Jesus, you need to repent of your sin and trust the cross. So do it. Right. Well, in New York, you're trying to make the case of why. Why, why you even, why, whether there is a God, period. Yeah, exa exactly. So there's a lot more deconstructing those objections before you even get to common ground in the gospel. That, that's what I mean by deconstruction. That's so helpful. I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you think of one or two preachers who are doing this well? Like if you want to study that approach to evangelism, who would be like, would you say, like I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tim Keller, have listened to almost all of his content on on his podcast, I see him doing elements of that. Like yeah. he, he speaks into the secular New York mind in a really powerful way. Are there other voices that you think are doing yeah. this well? So I, I think um, someone like uh, a few people I like, I like Dave Lomas at Reality San Francisco. He's okay. a guy, very secular city, city center, preaching with very, very thoughtful preaching. John Mark Comer. Uh, who is in Portland, Bridgetown Church in Portland? Again, a very secular city, doing a doing a very very good job. Uh, there's a guy in London named Pete Hughes at uh, KXE Kings Cross Church. He's a guy in a city centre um, doing an excellent job. I just tried to do this. I just did a series called uh, The Controversial Jesus, where I just took all the hardest cultural issues and tried to help people think about how to deconstruct the culture on these issues. Mm. Unfortunately, my talks, you know, the one I did on Jesus and the gay community was an hour and a half long. <laughs> <laughs> a 90-minute message? Was it a, a lecture series or a Sunday message? It was a Sunday message. Wow. I did G Jesus and the transgender community. That was an hour and 10. But anyway, so I, I so tried we to— We will link to all those in the show notes. We'll link to the preachers you mentioned and then— how about we'll link to that series, because I think that would be fascinating. Yeah, that was my attempt to provide an example of how to do it on some of the, the hardest issues in our culture. So hmm. we, could, uh, we could camp out there all day if we wanted to. There's some other things yeah. I want to cover. What, yeah. um, anything else? Because like, I, think, I think what happens in New York, would you say that if you take a 30-year-old New Yorker, a 30-year-old New Yorker has more in common with a 30-year-old Atlantan or, um, you know, skeptical millennial in Dallas than, say, the 50-year-old Texan or the 50-year-old Georgian. Um, is that right? Like, this is somewhat generational? I think that's true. Um, 
I think that's true. I think it's even more acute the younger you get. Yeah. Like the shared – like I read a fascinating – but when I moved to New York, New York was very, very clearly broken into a, a, a social strata. You know, you had you had cultural elites. And, and in many ways, this is, this is what Redeemer was built on. I mean, it was mm-hmm. classical music and jazz. And then I read a fascinating book called No Brow, and it was about how cultures basically are being mashed up where, you know, a person's music taste may include – may include some opera as well as Jay-Z, whereas yeah. before they would have been like very, very yeah. different cultural classes. And there's a, a giant mashup of culture. So I think that's true for millennials. Whatever Gen Z is, I, I have a son who's 18 and a daughter who's 15. Their generation is even more acutely experiencing shared culture because – and it, it's true that um, – so, so just to think for one second, kind of like this. When I grew up, there was there was four TV channels in Australia. Yeah. That was it. Yep. And then, you know, cable comes in. You have this influx of all of these channels that you can have. Well, in some senses, we're back to the three or four channel media because most people's lives are lived on three or four shared social media platforms. Mm. And so what's shared, what goes viral, who people follow in many ways is more like that shared cultural framework than that giant diversity. Now, there's diversity within the frameworks, but if a, and the way that a story trends on Twitter will show up at the top, now trending. Uh, if a post goes viral, kids will share the same content. So that, that shared sense of cultural, cultural reference points, key moments or whatever, are shaping this coming generation even more. So to the answer question is, yes, more in common, it's generational, and the defaults... Uh, are even stronger with Generation Z. We talked about some connection points with New Yorkers, but when you're thinking about Gen Z trying to reach younger adults or even New Yorkers, what are some disconnect points? Like it's one thing to say, okay, I've got to deconstruct, I've got to show a, a counterculture, I've got to do that, which I think is is really rich and great advice. But there's probably some things I do that almost create immediate disengagement from the person I'm trying to, to influence. What would be some disengagement points? Um, believing the Sermon on, on the Mount as truly the blessed life. <laughs> That's like, a t- like Jesus' core teaching. Blessed are the poor, blessed are you when you mourn, blessed are you when you're rejected, and you're better off having, you know, cutting your hand off and right. going to heaven whole rather than hell maimed and being angry. and So just basically really believing what Jesus taught. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's offensive in our culture. You know, we've got a 150-year narrative of self-expression and inclusion. And when you put any boundary markers up that say there's exclusion here and it's about self-denial, not self-fulfillment, that can be very, very hard for people. So I, I, I think if when I hear stories of people accepting Jesus too quickly – without a wrestling process, I get a little nervous hmm. because I'm like, at, at this time of history, you got to really, really wrestle. I mean, it's Bonhoeffer when, when Christ calls a man to follow him, he calls him to come and die. And I think that individualism, the age of authenticity, all of those sort of things, just Jesus is a confrontation with the values of our culture. Now, it can be a beautiful confrontation. It can be a winsome confrontation. But the fundamental nature of what we believe does not resonate with New Yorkers. I get that, um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that you have a posture 
that probably is attractive into a difficult dialogue. I know other preachers who would be like, well, that's just the gospel, and if you don't like it, you can stuff it. I would imagine that that would be an immediate disconnecting point with most New Yorkers. How do you manage to get people to engage? Like, how do you share that in a way? Because obviously, I mean, you've had up to 11 campuses. you got two locations now. You're growing. We were saying before we turned on the mic that you might have to move to an additional service. Like, you're obviously connecting with New Yorkers. So how do you, how do you bridge that gap? Well, I mean, you've got multiple, there's a multiple approaches. You know, some people are like confronters, other people are persuaders. I think I'm probably a little bit more of a subverter, which is <laughs> I, I, I have a conviction that um, the Christian story is the true story of the whole world, that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, whether you acknowledge him or not. And Francis Schaeffer has a, a technique he called taking the roof off, which is he says, modern people will always build shelters against the raw elements of the truth of the Christian story. And I want to graciously take take the roof off the shelter they've built to insulate themselves from God so they can encounter this wonderful God. Mm. So I'm, I'm a little bit more like, you know, my approach in some ways is like Jesus with the woman of the well, which is like, got five husbands. How's that going for you? Yeah. <laughs> how's, how's it going? Well, you know, as it turns out. So I'm, I'm all about basically, I don't believe that sin makes people flourish. I don't believe that rebelling against God leads to life. And so when people are doing that, I'm just like, hey, how's that going? And if it's going fine, if you're a happy pagan, I just pray that I'll love you and sow some seeds into your mind. But if that's not working, have I got good news for you? Mm. There's another way, you know, so it's the way of Jesus versus the way of the world. So that's my approach. It's basically, I'm not trying to have a, a brutal confrontation as much as I'm trying to subvert their understanding and, in, and invite them into another way. So your new book, just shifting gears a bit, it's called yeah. The Burden is Light, Liberating Your Life from the Tyranny of Performance and Success. Yeah, <laughs> right after I read the cover, I just put it down and put it away. So thanks for the interview. I really appreciate it. Um, no worries. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of leaders, including myself, who at times find the burden anything but light. Uh, what's up? Like, why does leadership feel so heavy sometimes? And when it feels heavy, how do we get it wrong? Leadership is hard. Yeah. So I'm not trying to make, you know, I'm not trying to say, I mean, Jesus is sweating drops of blood, asking the Father to take the cup from him if possible. Mm. Paul is like, I despaired of even life itself. Leadership is hard. I'm not trying to say leadership is easy. Right. But it's the difference between um, it being hard because you're you're living the call of God faithfully and it being hard because you're trying to achieve something in your own strength with your own vision and your own power. And so I'm primarily addressing the latter, not the former. I'm trying to like sort of hack into ungodly ambition and a sense of unbiblical striving to achieve something. And that's what I'm trying to address more than anything else in the book. How do we know the difference? I mean, you get into that chapter by chapter, but broad strokes, because this is, this is actually part of my prayer life. It's part of my discernment circle. Like, how do I know whether it's me or whether my ambition is well-motivated? Because I'm ambitious. How do I know that's, that's not just the ego talking? 
Well, I think part of it is like really discerning your sense of call. So Paul says to the Roman church, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but prophesy in accordance with your measure of faith. So, you know, C.S. Lewis also said that true humility doesn't look like what we think of humility, which is someone who's always like, no, glory to God, it's him, not me. That's often pride disguised. So I think you have to have a sober assessment of what you're actually called to do. So I think it's actually about a, a very, very honest sense of kingdom calling. So um, am I chasing uh, these success uh, metrics or success markers, visible markers in evangelical Christian culture? Or am I really chasing what Paul calls the upward call? And so if, you're, if you have a vertical call, if your ambition is all about uh, success in the eyes of man rather than a sense of the upward call. I think that's one of the ways you know. You know in your heart if you are doing this because you care about God, you care about people, you have this sense of um, gift and passion, or you know if you're just trying to make it, if you're trying to please people or you're trying to build your own brand. I think the gift that God gives us through the Holy Spirit is that that inside of us, that sense of dis-ease, that sense of conviction, that sense of peace that comes from pleasing God. So it's not easy to get there. And I think that sorts out the easy imposters. I agree with you. I mean, if someone's like, yeah, I wake up for myself. I care about myself. I'm using Christianity uh, to build a personal brand. I get that. And yet, you know, there's very few church leaders listening or even Christian business people listening who are, you know, not passionate about the numbers. Like they, they hope to reach more people. They yeah. hope that they're, um, you know, hopefully they're getting feedback on their preaching. Uh, they're trying to improve. Um, I mean, talk about how, how you've struggled at times, because you're pretty honest in the book. Like when, when has the burden felt heavy for you? And how have you realized, oh, I've moved to that side of the situation I, I need to correct. Well, that, I mean, now you're, now you're pressing beyond the surface level question, so I, I yeah. appreciate that. Um, I, I think the issue of identity, Christian identity, who we are, and who is the loudest voice in our head is something that takes real, real time to 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 unpack and to decipher. So, when, you know, when you first become a Christian, you, you do get rid of the big sins. When you become a leader, you get rid of the big leadership mistakes. Yes. But the, fi- the fine-tuning of the motives in the heart, that seems to be th- the deeper work. So, uh, there's a book written called The Critical Journey. And um, if you haven't read it, if you just Google The Critical Journey, it'll pull up an image under pictures that explains the whole book. And they basically say there's these different stages in the Christian life. Stage one is an awareness of God. Stage two is a life of discipleship. Stage three is the productive life. But then you hit a wall, which talks about the, the inward journey, which is really the confrontation of your motives, your desires, your heart, your sense of identity. And I think that, that honestly, in the grace of God, most leaders will, the Holy Spirit will lead people to a place where they have to confront their motives, either through ministry crisis, personal crisis, uh, mentor voice crashing in, where the other things no longer work and bring any sort of rewards. 
So you can't have another revival and have a fresh encounter with the presence of God. He's just yeah, not going to yeah. mani- he's just not going to manifest himself. It's not about missional discipleship anymore. It's not about doing things for God. And it's not about the productive life, which is often where your gifts are being used to produce kingdom fruit. That sort of no longer works. And then God sort of sends you inward. And that journey can be very, very painful. Almost every leader has a talk about it. In every conference has a talk that features this journey. And I think it's accepting that ministry of the Holy Spirit and being willing to go there that is the key of how to deal with it. Because you can numb it. You can just go back and you can you can hype your ministry up. You can launch new programs. You can sort of numb that process. But to me, the Holy Spirit brings you that confrontation of motives. And it's you emerge out of that caring primarily about love, not about success. And for some people, that happens in their 20s. For some people, it happens in their 30s. A lot of folks, that's connected to midlife issues. But I think that's kind of like part of the way you get in it. The Holy Spirit leads you into it where you get an internal dissonance, even if things are going well, where you're just like, this isn't it. This Mm. isn't it. And it's about the inner life. So Paul has a a passage in 1 Corinthians 4 where he says um, about not receiving praise from man. He says, what you've done will be brought before God. The motives of your heart will be exposed, and each of you will receive your reward from God, your praise from God. So somewhere in that inner journey, that inner crisis, your value system goes from being praised by man, praised by what you can accomplish, praised by what you can do, to the praise of God, where he begins to really deal with your motives. So it's kind of like a deep, a deeper crisis work almost. Does that ever resolve? Or is it just a tension like you're always... Maybe, I, I agree, there are seasons, and I have definitely been at stage yeah. four for a good chunk of my leadership... Yeah. Where you're right, it's the journey in, it's the journey down, it's the, okay, I know I say this, but am I really? And what's yeah. really motivating me? And I think that's a healthy dialogue, but like, does that tension ever resolve? Or is it just something <laughs> you're still asking yourself at 75? Yeah, I don't think it resolves, but I think you're, you're playing in a different field. You mm. know, like you're, you're, you, the, the rules have changed. Yes. So my guess would be like, you no longer you, you see through the illusion of success. It doesn't mean you don't want it, but you just now have an awareness like this is an illusion. I can't find it here. Therefore, I'm forced to look elsewhere. And so I'm not sure it resolves, but I think you change the the, the you reroute your desires and longings into a different area. Huh. And they, they create new tensions, but I think that you you see through the illusion. And um, you, you just can't go back there. What's that you book just, called again? Oh, The Critical Journey. It's like Critical one of those. Journey. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a great read. All right. We'll link to it in the show notes. I got to read it. Honestly, yeah. John, I didn't, I'd never heard of that book. It sounds yeah. like I've been living in that territory, and that is my next book, Didn't See It Coming, which yeah. will either be out shortly before yeah. you this airs or after yeah. this airs, or it's already out. I don't know when this is going to air, but... Isn't that fascinating? Because that yeah. is the, the, the sea I've been swimming in. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question. I think I, I do know the answer to this, but like not every leader gets to stage four, correct? Sometimes you can live in the shallows. You can live in the... Yes, and not only do not most leaders get there, most church traditions don't even have a theological door you can walk through. 
Boom. So I, I, I come from a Pentecostal background. I came to mm. Christ in an AOG church. And if those, those three stages, awareness of God, life of discipleship, and then the productive life, if that doesn't work, they're like, you just need a fresh encounter with God. So you go... <laughs> You you're down the aisle again for the 18th yeah, yeah, time, you're re- right? You're revival chasing, and um, I'm not. I'm not. I love revival, man. I'm. I. Mm. I've tried to take the absolute best of the Pentecostal theology in life with me, but at some point, there's no more discipleship or fruit or whatever. God's just not there anymore. He's moved on. And maybe in a less charismatic tradition, it's just like, well, John, you just got to confess your sin again, and you're just in this death loop of confession, and then like, I don't know what's left to confess, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for, to quote the yeah. old song. Yes, and I think in some sense, if you were to say like you've got, um, you've got the ministry of Jesus, you've got the, the, the theology of like, if you were to, to pass out everything Jesus is, at some point, the only thing that works is the person of Jesus. Hmm. And it's like, you've, you've got to follow him into the dark. Yeah. And in, in the darkness, that's where, you know, it's not about the power of the Spirit, it's about the fruit of the Spirit, you know, and that's, that's a, definitely a, a shift. So people who go through that journey will often be misunderstood by the tradition that they've become successful in. Like that, <laughs> the paradigm that's created them, they will often feel like they're betraying it by moving into further spiritual growth. Or they feel they have, you know what, you're right. Or they feel they have to leave it. It's like, I can't be this tradition anymore because you guys don't have a category for me. I, compl- I mean, why are so many, I mean, I, I, I mean, I have, you know, integrate quite a bit into the church planting world. Yeah. And you, you meet so many people, I'm like, hey, why are you an Anglican, man? Let me guess. You you were a non-denominational youth pastor in a church that didn't value theology or tradition, <laughs> and now you're an Anglican which values theology and tradition. I get it. Or why are you now a raging Pentecostal? Let me guess. You grew up in a mainline denomination where there was no power of God, and you went through an Alpha course and you met the Holy Spirit. You know, so that does seem to be that people. It would be great if we could find a way for people to to stay in their tradition and bring the gifts of their experience to the tradition through their leadership. And I think those are the kind of leaders that we really need who can take you places where you haven't been. So let's integrate a little more, perhaps. So when the burden has felt heavy for you, what has been true when you look back? When the burden of leadership is like, gosh, I'm exhausted, or this, this just seems to be too much, what tend to be the, the traps that you or others would fall into? Um. Success, chasing success, comparison, mm. doing things that um, I'm not called to because everybody else is and I feel like if I don't, I'm going to be bypassed or become irrelevant. And then lack of boundaries, not practicing Sabbath, trying to be God, not taking time off, not resting. You know. And if I find that if I'm living my call with clarity and I'm living within the boundaries of being a created human being, then I find that ministry is pretty life-giving and I feel like I can do it for a long time. When I get outside of that, scary territory. I want to come back to all the things you've touched on, but let's start with Sabbath. What does Sabbath look like for you? Sabbath looks like a 24-hour period of time where I practice the sovereignty of God. And Marva Dawn wrote a wonderful book on Sabbath. She says, Sabbath contains four parts. Ceasing, Resting, embracing, and feasting. So I stop, I stop, I stop working. And then I rest, and then I embrace, and then I feast. 
So I, I try and take this Friday from 5 p.m. to Saturday to 5 p.m. And I have specific practices, foods I eat, music I listen to. I remember Tim Keller saying once, you know, we live in a culture where we're just inundated with brokenness. And so we have to fill our minds and hearts with beauty on the Sabbath. So I try and intake life-giving beauty. And I, What and I does do that it. look like? Oh, well, everybody's different, you know. Sure, so, but I'm just I, curious for you. Yeah, for me, it, it's um, I, I'm pretty aesthetically driven. So it would be a combination of like kinfolk-like beauty along with poetry poetry and jazz music, soundtracks, music, things that stir the spirit, you know, that, that's hmm. me. And then, um, so what does embrace look like? Is that the embracing beauty and art? And No, em- em- embracing is basically replacing yourself inside of the Christian story. Ah. I am not God. God is God. I will die soon. I'm a human being. And I just have to acknowledge that my life will not accomplish everything I've wanted. I will die with tensions in my heart. Therefore, I will steward this beautiful thing called life and this season I'm in with gratitude. So it's about, it's about embracing your creatureliness before, before the Creator. What about things like yard work or household chores? Is that done on another day? Yeah, you've got to have a prep day for your Sabbath often. Yeah, yeah, you got to have two, stuff. right? You got to take yeah, yeah. two. So you, that's right. You got to. It's Sabbath is not like all the stuff I didn't get done this week because I was too busy. Right. That's called catching up or chore day. Yeah. Sabbath is a twenty-four hour period of time where you consciously. It's it's the two keys. It's like remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Mm-hmm. So there's a remembering part and then there's a keeping part, and that's been we've been doing that. You know, it's actually really funny because I haven't got that many things right in my leadership. Hmm. But when I when I started going to leadership conferences, which I think I went to the first ever Catalyst conference when I was maybe 22 or 23, and I noticed something at that conference, that there was a talk and a leader almost burned out and killed himself because of pace of life. Hmm. And then the next year I went back and there was another talk, a leader almost killed himself and burned out through pace of life. And then every conference I went to, there was a guy up the front saying, I almost lost my marriage, my kids, my church, my soul. And I remember in my early 20s thinking, I am the biblical definition of a fool if I had listened to these godly, wonderful men telling me, have a sustainable pace of life. So I have, that's like maybe the the one thing I've gotten right is practicing the Sabbath and taking enough rest where, you know, and I've got a wife with an aligned vision and we did it as a part of our family culture. And I feel like that saved me in many ways, you know. Hmm. It's like John Acuff has often said to me, do you have to burn out to have a good story? Like, can't you just have a good story without burnout? Uh, That's so good. It's true. He's like, why does everyone have to burn out to get to the other side and then teach the next generation? I'm like, well, I'm disqualified because I burnt out. But it's a great question. And I love love hearing that, John. It's so funny. I'm like... I'm saying this right now, and soon it may be John Tyson's burnt out and is taking a year off. (laughs) (laughs) There, but for the grace of God, right? (laughs) Okay, comparison. You just let that one slip. That's not a big issue in ministry. I mean, the internet has not made that any easier because now we see everything, not just the guy down the road, but but anybody, anywhere. Um, Talk about comparison for a little bit. Um, Is it possible to live without it? it? It's not. It's not. We're always, we're always, we are, we are community beings who are always developing a reference point of ourself based on others' perceptions of us. 
So you can, we're, right. we're not completely self-identifying. You know, like we, we have to be granted a sense of belonging and worth from others. You can't separate that. The question is, who are you getting that from? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I think I originally heard John Wimber say this, but he said, and I, I've got this in the book, we get the gospel out of order. You know, we think that the gospel is Jesus, you know, Jesus basically lives this amazing life where he confronts Pharisees, saves sinners, dies on the cross. And when he's ascending into heaven, the father says, you know, this is my beloved son who I love and I'm well pleased with. But that's not how the gospel's ordered at all. Jesus does nothing for 30 years but manual labor. And before he does any of that, the heavens open, the father says, this is my beloved son. So Jesus ministered from identity, not for identity, from blessing, not for blessing. And that seems to be the issue of comparing yourself with what the father says rather than what the culture says. So you just got to get a different reference point. You, you will always have a reference point. And uh, there's a lot of deep work around identity formation and that I think is important. The, another thing that I, that I do that's been helpful for me is like, you know, we're called to consider the faith of others. So like Hebrews 11 is like the great cloud of witnesses. And it also says in Hebrews, uh, remembers your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. So, so there's something about who are you trying to compare yourself to? I think that there's, there's a godly way to be mentored redemptively from history where you say, I want to see kingdom fruit like that. Therefore, I will live like them, imitate them, be patient like them. So there's helpful ways to do it. The unhealthy ways is jumping on someone else's website and then getting angry at your staff and making them do a program because you feel like you're missing out. Why are we doing that? You know? <laughs> I'm laughing with you. Yeah, that's so true. What, um, this must be in some way tied to security slash insecurity in leaders. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, th- th- that's fundamental. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, I think these days you can almost smell insecurity. Yeah. Every you young s- leader, every, we just did a national conference and there was a, a wonderful older gentleman pastor that we had in and he talked about his journey through insecurity and you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. Well, I did, I did an exercise recently that, that has brought so much freedom, and it's connected, um, it's connected to that, that life planning exercise uh, that I did or whatever. But this is what it was. I basically said, so when I turned 40, I said, I want to have a theologically informed midlife crisis. I think I'm going to have one. And, you know, like the guy who was mentoring me was like, Tyson, you're going to have one, man. You, you are so yeah. blind for one. So I said, okay, I'm going to try and lean into it rather than avoid it. And how do I do this theologically? So I basically took a summer and I did this exercise where I asked this question, God, what are the sovereign themes you've put in my life? All stories have common elements and all lives follow some sort of shared arc, but there's these moments of variance. And so I basically got my life down to four things that if you heard my story, you'd go, dude, that is crazy. That is okay. like not a normal story. And then I said, okay, what if, what if God's sovereignly done these in my life because they're meant to be the themes of my life? And then if I live into those themes, do they produce security or insecurity? Do these have a sense of the divine in them or not? 
And I basically realized that a lot of my insecurity and a lot of my comparison was that I was living other people's themes for their lives rather than living these sovereign themes for my life. And I think deep, deep security comes from, from knowing this is why you're made, this is why you're gifted, this is why you've been through what you've been through. Now minister out of those, th- those things. And that to me has brought tremendous security knowing that I'm, I'm living out of a call, not just hustling to keep up with trends. You know, so I think there's a faithfulness and a rootedness that people sense. Can you give us an example of one of those moments that was shaping, defining for you, you know, the craziness that you're like, yes, tell yes. people this, they wouldn't believe it? Yeah, well, uh, yes. Yeah, so I was getting mentored by Tim Keller and also one of the first 50 people invited to Reinhard Bonnke's School of Fire Evangelism. Okay. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm sitting in a room hearing Tim Keller talk about reaching cultural elites and then I'm in a room where everybody is slain in the spirit or laughing in the spirit under Reinhard Vonke bringing, re- bringing revival to America. And I just thought, why, why am I in both of these rooms? <laughs> and so the, the idea of integrating theology and power, the way I put it is we want theology that can't be dismissed, power that can't be denied. Mm. And why is it so often that people with power don't have good theology and people with great theology have no power? It's about integrating those things. The Apostle Paul could preach to sophisticated cultural elites and then walk into a meeting and see that somebody had faith to be healed. Seamless apostolic ministry. So Paul wasn't like, well, there's no power here because I, I believe in this deep theology. No, it's integrating. So that's one of my sovereign themes, which is like you know, the spirit and the word. How did but, you figure that out? Well, I just realized that, I mean, I've got, I got 20 other stories where I'm in the room with some of the smartest people in the world, and then I'm in the craziest Pentecostal meetings where I'm, I, th- I think I'm the only person who thinks like I think in this room. <laughs> I, I, just ha- I just have to be. And so when I was going through that, that life planning sort of exercise. Which you start just, the book with. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just saw I keep finding myself in these two environments that normally repel each other. And it was honestly normally through some sort of invitation. I was going to say, most people would eliminate one of those streams. Most people would say, I'm not going to the crazy anymore. I'm going to stay with the theology. Or some people would say, enough deep theology without the spirit. I'm going to the spirit side. Yeah, that's right. And I just kept finding life in both of them. Ah. You know, and, I, and so I, I feel like part of my call, part of like my, my ministry is to help charismatic is to bring theology to charismatics. I'm not saying they don't have it. Yeah, but no, like no. Bring, bringing a more robust theology and appreciation of theology to charismatics, you know, and so, I, and, and the invitations I get are somewhat like that, where, you know, charismatic denominations or people will say, John, will you come and teach on this, that, or whatever? So that's a way I recognize. So for the leader listening, and I don't know whether we're talking about two different things, but my mind is going to, and this is fairly recent, like last five, seven years for me, I've had a very circuitous route to where I am. Yeah. You know, from the time I was a kid, wanted to be a lawyer at 16 years old, walked into a radio station. They hired me. I did eventually major market radio. I've you got national- that voice. You've got that radio <laughs> That was like eight years in radio, right? <laughs> Including a stint in Toronto. And then um, uh, national TV for a couple of years. That was more recent. Uh, courtroom law and then congregational ministry. And I'm like, none of this adds up. And then I think it was Peter Thiel I was listening to. I don't know who it was. It was some podcast somewhere. 
And he said, when I look at, you know, my success, PayPal, all the other stuff he's done in Silicon Valley, he's like, boils down to one thing, communication. And all of a sudden the light bulb went on. Like, this isn't even a Christian podcast, nothing like that. I'm like, ah. everything I've done, I've moved toward the communication side. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, God created me to do communication. Like that, that is something. Is it something like that where you kind of look back and you pick up the disparate threads and it's like, you, you just go, that's what God is doing. And it's a bit of a puzzle you put together in reverse. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And even, um, even so what you've done recently, like I said, I was, I was just, uh, you know, reading through your stuff on your website. It's like, in the last few years or whenever you made this transition, it's like you've moved from being the lead pastor, primarily running the church, to being the teaching pastor, where you're like, okay, I got a sweet spot here. Yep. Yeah, I, you can run the church well. You're a gifted leader, but there may be someone else who can do that as well. But you're you've got a rare communication gift, so let's let's focus on this. Let's like let's double down on this. Yeah. And I think when you do that, you see a release of the spirit. You see more fruit. But internally, you get the deeper sense. This is what I was born for, and that's what free you from having to be somebody else. Oh, somebody bingo. else. Yeah, you see someone else, and they may be like. They may be an amazing, you know, mentor in their their absolute sweet spot is raising up younger leaders, and you go, yeah, I can do that. But if you feel like the standard version of success is you have to be able to lead well, raise up young leaders, communicate at a world class level, be a pastor or counselor, it'll crush you. But oh, when yeah. you realize, naha, here's a theme, here's a gift set, I'm going to run into it. That's where I think the burden does become light. And it's so funny, it's that line, I think you're totally right, just to help leaders who are trying to figure this out, there's that line in Chariots of Fire, right? Like, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Totally. Now, in my life, when I run, I feel Satan's agony, because um, <laughs> I'm not a runner. <laughs> Even cycling is a bit of a stretch for me. But I can't tell you the number of times I'm communicating, I'm writing, I'm thinking, I'm clarifying ideas, I'm walking off a platform, and I'm like, I am doing what I was created to do, and there's virtually no doubt about it, you know? And that's freedom. The way I came to New York, um, I had one of my mentors come up and just pray around the city with me, and he used that exact line. He said, John, when I see you walking the streets of New York City, I see the pleasure of God on you. Mm -hmm. And it was totally true. I'm thriving here. I was born for this place. And there's just a sense of ease and joy and life. Just I live two blocks from Times Square. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know, couldn't be happier. So I think that's a great indicator, that the pleasure of God. So if someone is looking back on their life, trying to figure out what are those threads for me? Yeah, because you're right, when you're out of your area of giftedness and you're not in your area of calling, the burden is heavy. Uh, put me in the finance department. Um, it's going to be a heavy burden for everybody not yeah. just for me. Um, put me in management. I'm, I'm a leader, but I'm a visionary. I mean, put yeah. me in day-to-day -day management. Um, nobody's going to be real happy. So yeah. the burden gets a lot heavier that way. If you're trying to help people discern like their life map, their life plan, what are some things they can look for? Well, I mean, I think there's general things. So, and, and there's things like personality tests. There's the life planning process. There's, there's all those things. I think energy is a big one. And, and you know, mm. but it's not just that. Everybody knows that, you know, what gives you energy, what sucks your energy away. I think it's the courage to act on it. Mm. And that's, what, that's where most young leaders fail to take action. They don't have the courage at a young enough age. 
like they, you know, they're wanting to either prove they'll do anything or um, they feel like they they have to keep up. And I think embracing that earlier, I, that's what I wish I would do. If I had my time again, I would have embraced these sovereign themes earlier and just said no to way more. I, I sense this is something God has for me. This means I'm not going to be able to be all things to all people. I got to come to terms with that. And I probably honestly could have done that in my late 20s or early 30s. And I ground past it out of either responsibility or obligation for another eight years. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So if I, and I knew in my spirit, I knew it was coming together. You're not good at that, man. This is killing you. You do these other things, you feel like you're flying. And then I was like, no, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't seem like it's hard enough. God wants it to be harder. I don't know. Like oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Talk about that because I think that's very true, right? Hey, there are parts of communication that are hard. We all yeah. get stuck. You know, I think I'm in my sweet spot, but it's not like everything is is easy. But you're right. There's this sense that, and I'm so glad you articulated it, like, oh, well, if it's easy, then God, like if it's natural and it feels wonderful, then God can't possibly be in it. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I am sometimes... You know, I went through a major transition, leaving the the mega church that I'd planted in the middle of New York City to, you know, in some sense, start again. And people are like, how's that gone? And in some senses, I get a little embarrassed because I'm like, well, it's gone amazing. I'm loving my life. I'm filled with peace and joy. And <laughs> I'm operating out of a, a deep sense of call and a sustainable pace and and I was like, well, but isn't your life hard? I'm like, my life is brutally hard. But underneath it, there's this profound sense of just gratitude and wonder. And I think I accept that now. I accept mm. that, you know, rather than being like, no, no, it can't be God's will if there's not more pain. Rather than like, there's a deep sense of, you know, Paul talks about this. He, he talks about the um, momentary and light afflictions that are working out an eternal weight of glory. Now, for him, a momentary light affliction was like being, beaten, yes. uh, you know, yeah. I mean, his, yeah. his, so his framework of what he, because of his deep sense of vision and call and joy, was able to call a momentary line affliction is a good guidepost for us. You know, it will be hard, but if you're doing it right, how God's wired you, there's going to be this just sense of, of, of lightness and life to it. So one of the things you said is you wish you had done that earlier. Another theme you address in your book is control that the burden gets heavy when you're in a controlling place. Are the two related, the sense that it has to be hard, that I have to do everything? And I want you to think, I mean, you've led a mega church and now you're sort of in, in startup and it's growing like crazy. But, you know, most people, by definition, listening to this podcast are leading smaller churches where they feel an obligation to do everything. How does that, like, control can be a big growth limiter um, control can be just devastating for leaders as well as for followers. Um, talk about control and how that makes the burden heavier. Yeah, there's, there's two kinds of control. There's, there's, there's godly responsibility, which mm -hmm. is good. You know, like you have to be able to, like self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So there's, there's a godly kind of control but there's an ungodly kind of control. And that's what I'm addressing. And the ungodly kind of control says, if I don't make this happen, if I empower somebody, it's basically rooted in fear and it crushes love, 
it crushes other people and it sucks up all the energy you have for joy. And it basically, it's exhausting trying to be a God, making the outcomes of your life happen. It's exhausting trying mm-hmm. to be God. And so we have to surrender. We have to surrender other people to God. We can't control people. We have to surrender outcomes to God. God is sovereign. Sometimes you'll bless something unexpectedly and something you thought was a guaranteed win's going to fail. So you have to surrender that. And you have to surrender um, your, your ability to, to be in the driver's seat. And so I think there's like all these like little micro moments of surrender that we actually have to practice and be aware of so that we have the instincts needed in the larger moments of surrender. Um, and so, you know, I, I think constant every day just handing it over to God, you know, so the, the other name of the book instead of the burden of light was going to be results may vary. And <laughs> I think that's true. Like you be faithful with God's, God's called you to do. He'll reward you but the results are up to him. He says that. One plants, another waters, but God makes it grow. And so we just have to trust that that it's up to God, you know? So I think that is is a real temptation leaders. leaders, I'm not going to empower you because you won't do it exactly how I want it, controlling people or pushing and driving people like a taskmaster to make sure that the outcomes you want happen, but you're becoming a horrible leader by doing it. Those are the things we've got to watch out for. What has that looked like in your leadership, releasing control? How has that battle hit you personally? <laughs> well, I've, I've heard, um, I, I had one definition of pastoring that, and shepherding that, that's always sort of stuck with me. And it says, the leader who leads with vision because he goes ahead, finds the pasture like a shepherd, and then creates a pathway for his sheep to flourish. It's it's the trust, it's the vision, it's the pasture that people will be drawn to. But if the leader doesn't have that vision for the flourishing of the sheep, he will have to drive the sheep. And when you drive the sheep, the sheep scatter. So you have to unleash the dogs. And the dogs are fear, control, rewards, uh, exclusion from centers of power and belonging, those sorts of things. And so I've always tried to lead by vision and rather than driving from behind and unleashing the dogs of ministry. So, <laughs> so I've not heard that. That's great. That's like, okay, you know that little um, circle on your phone that says uh, rewind 30 seconds? Just do that a few times and listen to that back. That's amazing. <laughs> That's really good. So vision is sort of invitational leadership. It's like, come on over, you know, and, and they come because they want to because the grass is green. Yeah, and it's, it's, and you know, I mean, this is the old classic. I heard Andy Stanley, and this is from uh, Puzas and Costner's uh, book on leadership, but I heard Andy Stanley tell this, how does someone know if a photo is good? Because they look good in the photo. And so <laughs> make people look good in the photo. Cast a vision that's not about how great you are or how great your church brand is going to be, but have a vision of people reaching their redemptive potential and showing showing them who they could be in the kingdom of God. And mm. people are normally drawn to that. Very few people in our culture offer people a vision for their future. Well, I know there's so much more we could cover from the book, and it is it is a powerful word. It's called The Burden is Light, Liberating Your Life from the Tyranny of Performance and Success. But um, if you had just a couple pieces of advice for 
people, additional advice for people who feel that the burden is still a bit too heavy. Any closing thoughts or words, John? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it would basically be just just get in touch with why it is you went into ministry in the first place. Mm. Like try try and access access that again. Try and push away all the things you've been through and get back to that original call. And I think, you know, after everything, after everything Peter went through, Jesus just says to him, just look, feed my sheep, mate. Yeah. Feed my sheep. And getting back to that sense of call. So I, I, that would be one thing. The second thing, it would be like, whatever John 15 means by abiding, resolve in your heart, you will be a black belt in abiding. Hmm. It's wh- whatever that is, wh- however you interpret that theologically, it's an all or nothing take. With me, your prayers will be answered, you'll have overflowing joy, you'll please the Father, or you can do nothing. So what, if, if ever like there was like a controlling insight about kingdom life, that seems to be one. So whatever abiding is, resolve in your heart, I will be a black belt at revol- at. at abiding in Jesus' love. Don, this has been so rich. I just want to thank you so much. People would love to learn more. Where they can, where can they find the book? And then uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, so you can, you can buy the book at any of the normal places, uh, probably Amazon.com. Um, if you want to follow me online, I'm only uh, on two places, uh, and it's, it's Twitter and Instagram at John Tyson, J-O-N-T-Y-S-O-N. And if you want to find our church, it's churchofthecity.nyc. Cool website, too. Really cool Yeah, well, thanks for popping on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. John, thank you so much for your time today. Mate, this has been awesome. Really, really appreciate it. That was so rich, wasn't it? Man, if you want more, head to the show notes. Go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 204. Or um, if you're worried about the spelling, which the whole world is, just go to leadlikeneverbefore.com in a little search window on the top right. Type in John Tyson, T-Y-S-O-N. You will find the show notes. Links to everything we talked about are there. Also, hey, just because you may have thought you missed out on this, there's a tiny, maybe a little bit of room left on my launch team for my new book, Didn't See It Coming. If you haven't yet joined to be the launch team and you want to help, number one, help us get the word out, but Number one, get yourself a copy, an advanced copy of Didn't See It Coming. Um, You can find all the links in the show notes, or you can simply go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. Click on the hamburger menu if you're in mobile or if you're on a desktop, look for Didn't See It Coming. You'll see it there. Click on join the launch team and get in because we're closing the door. And I would love to have you a part of it. Uh, You're going to get exclusive access to all the early information On my new book, it releases September 4th. We're building a launch team and I would love to have you be a part of that if you're not yet a part of that. Also, make sure you check out trainedup.church and get your team trained. I mean, you you are going to join tens of thousands of leaders who have been trained via trainedup.church and it can actually accelerate your church this fall. So make sure you head on over there and check that out. And next week, what are we doing? Well... I had another great conversation. This one, not with someone from Australia. This seems to be like, okay, for all of you who listen from Australia and New Zealand, I don't know why this is not intentional, but like we have a ton of Aussies and Kiwis on the podcast this year. So um, don't know why that is. You guys are making an impact around the world. 
Elliot Crowther is my guest. And when he was 24, he was in almost like what a lot of people would call a dead-end job as a door-to-door salesperson, but he leveraged it for everything he could, came up with an idea and turned it into, get this, seven years later, a $300 million a year company valued at over a billion dollars. He's 31 years old. I sat down with him and got the backstory behind his idea. It looks really sexy from the outside to say, oh, you know, hey, look, that guy's doing this thing and it's really grandiose. Honestly, there's just a principle about being faithful with the small, not with the idea of getting more. Like that's where people, I think it's so easy to trip up. Like I'm going to be faithful with the small and then eventually I'm going to have maybe, but maybe not. Like just being satisfied and doing what you have as well as you can right now. And then balancing that with maybe the ambition and the fire that you've got inside of your own heart. It's a really, that's a nuanced dance. So next week, Elliot Crowther and the story behind Push Pay. And again, if you've got business leaders that you think would enjoy that or other ministry leaders that you think would really benefit from this, it was a fascinating conversation. Send them the link, tell them to subscribe. It's free. And then, uh, yeah, they'll be ready next Tuesday when this new episode drops. After that, we've got Les McEwen, who is back. He is going to talk all about visionaries, operators, and processors in your organization and why we drive each other crazy. Then Bobby Grunwald comes onto the podcast. We talk about first mover advantage, innovation, AI, technology, and the future. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited about what's, what's happening in this podcast over the course of the next few months. Again, if you subscribe, you get that automatically for free. And I just want to say thank you. Thanks for being you. Thanks for doing this. We are back next Tuesday with a fresh episode. And I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.